don't forget, you're going to die. Welcome to the We Croak podcast. I'm your host, Hansa Bergwall, and today we have Sally Tisdale as a guest, and uh, we're going to be talking about her book, Advice for Future Corpses. And when I first heard the title of that book, I knew I wanted Sally as a guest just because it made me laugh, and I thought her perspective would be worth having, and it sure was. She's a palliative care nurse that has helped so many people through the dying process, so she knows death intimately. She is also a tremendous thinker and writer whose work has appeared in The New Yorker and Harper's and a number of other places. And what's amazing about her thinking and her work is this is, you know, a beautiful book, page by page, but it's also a how-to you know, it's, it's how to die better and also how to not be an asshole when someone you know or love is dying. Uh, Sally doesn't mince words, really. She basically calls us out as Americans saying, you're not good at this. I've seen you at deathbeds and making um, people uncomfortable near death. And it doesn't have to be that way. So, you know, I think this is a must read, must listen to um, because you're not going to have time when, uh, when the person you love has uh, sort of gotten that diagnosis or is, is headed for, for, uh, for the place we're all headed. Uh, so read it now so that you're, you're ready and listen to this conversation because she's awesome and funny. And so without further ado, here we go. Today, uh, as I mentioned, we have Sally Tisdale uh, with us whose uh, book, Advice for Future Corpses, I cannot recommend enough. Uh, when someone calls you a future corpse and then hits you up for 25 bucks to hear the rest of what they have to say, that's a voice you need in your life. So thank you, um, Sally. Thank you for having me. And uh, just to give listeners an idea, uh, why did you write this book and why did you call it what you did? Well, I really have to give props to an editor at Tricycle who really uh, came up with the original title. I wrote a piece for Tricycle last two years ago. Um, they did a special issue on self-care and self-help. And I have a pretty jaded reaction to the word self-help, um, especially for my generation. I'm 61 and I feel like I'm in the middle of a generation that is so self-involved um, so stuck on certain things. Uh, and so I, they ended up calling my piece, um, self care for future corpses because my main message was namaste. You're dead. It doesn't matter how much yoga you do or how many cleanses you do, or, um, how many times you go to the gym, you're still going to die. So I took that title and I've also been teaching classes and workshops in how to prepare for dying uh, for some time. And uh, this began with that experience. What do people really think about the fact that they're going to die? What is it that we resist? What is it we fight about that? What are we afraid of? Um, and I saw some real uh, clear patterns in the way people were reacting. I mean, clearly this is a self-selected group, right? Anybody who's willing to take a class in getting ready to die has already started to think about it. But that doesn't mean that we've really accepted it. Uh, a lot of um, the beginning part of this book is looking at the fact that resistance is, gets more and more subtle. We find deeper and deeper layers of resistance in ourselves when we think about dying. Yeah, and you talk really eloquently about all the ways that that resistance follows people from, and the people, you know, uh, the family members and loved ones around the person right up into the end, the, the negotiations and the, the fear around it. Do you, how, what, what is your advice for, you know, future corpses about, you know, dealing with that resistance? I remember it being counterintuitive. Well, I think one of the ways that we approach it is to just live with it a lot. It has helped me to be around dying people. It has helped me to be around dead bodies. But the I want to live and live and live. And I'm continually aware of this part of me that doesn't entirely believe it. 
You know, you say that we are human and sometimes we cry, sometimes we lose our tempers, tremble with fear, puke, wet our pants, this is life, this is death. And you just, a lot of times you say, like, you can try too hard to have a good death. Like, there's going to be some denial. That is part of your acceptance, that sometimes you're going to forget and you're going to not be rational about it. Part of getting ready to die is the way we get ready for anything in the future, which is open-handedly, we, we can set everything up, we can have everything planned, we can see it coming for months, we can be surrounded by loving, competent caregivers, and we can still be surprised by how it unfolds. And I tell stories in the book of several people I've been close to who've died, none of whom have died in the way they planned to or expected to. And were, were they ready to die or not? In some cases, yes, but that doesn't mean it happened the way they thought it would happen. So when I talk about good death, what is a good death? I like to say we should consider what is an appropriate death or a congruent death with who you are. For instance, my friend Carol, who was my best friend for many years and very active, physically active person, we were scuba divers together. And when she got breast cancer, she fought tooth and nail to stay healthy. She was a judge. She had several good years. She went on safari to Africa while she was in the middle of chemotherapy. This is the kind of cancer patient she was. I had a lot of images of what a Carol's good death would be like in her bed, in her hand-built log cabin in the Oregon mountains with me there. And she died in an emergency room during CPR. And for a long time, it was, I felt like there was a failure there. I thought I'd failed because I was her healthcare representative or she'd failed or her husband had failed in some way. I had to accept the fact that Carol died trying not to die. And that was really who she was. That's not what we think of as a good death, but I have come to see that that might have been a very congruent death for Carol. And it was what she wanted at that time. I also had to see how selfish my ideal of her death was. It was, to some extent, about me and what I wanted about her death. So we have to be willing to do some really deep self-examination. We have to be pretty ruthless with ourselves and admit to all that jealousy and pettiness that human beings have, as well as all these little fears. And that is so much of what I appreciated about this book, which think writes about some of you know the, the the ruthlessness you've applied to yourself in terms of coming to greater understanding and, and being really being there for the people in palliative care and your friends it's it was moving there was one section where you wrote about uh, scuba diving I believe it was with your friend Carol you were just speaking of and it was the both of you knew the last dive you'd ever have and it was this moving moving moment of that time yes I remember that very vividly. And I, I just will add that I really don't have a lot of patience with anything that smacks of new age light and, and, and airy, fairy, happy times. I don't think that humans are about just light and love. I think we have shadows and complexities that are unbelievably deep. I'm in favor of that deep honesty and admitting who we really are authentically right now in this moment, which is not always pretty and is not always what we want to be. One of the most refreshing parts about your book for me was just the practical advice of what not to do. <laughs> you know, death is such, such a taboo in our culture that it sounds like you've seen many, many times that people just don't know how to act. People definitely don't know how to act. I mean, if you if you stopped 10 people on the street and asked them, have they ever been with a person who was dying, you know, probably 10 will say no or nine. And they'll say, maybe I saw my grandma once uh, when she was old. We just don't see it. There's that. And then when you ask people if they've ever been around an actual dead body, very, 99 out of 100 people have not. And we whisk people away from it. We actually, we actually close the door on it. Um, we handle it, to me, completely in the wrong way. Experience helps a lot. So maybe this is a good moment. I'd love to hear about your story of how you came to have experience in this world of being drawn to palliative care as a nurse, getting into it, and sort of what that journey has been like for you. 
I started college when I was quite young at 16, and I had the advantage of not having a mentor, (laughs) if you could see it that way. I had nobody taking me by the hand and saying, this is what you do in college. This is how you get to a career. I just made my own way from that young age. And so I, I, I tasted pretty um, widely of the world. And one of the first things I did when I was 17 is I took a, a medical school admission anatomy and physiology class and spent a year working with cadavers. So I was quite young. I didn't know you weren't supposed to want to do this. I didn't know that there were societal taboos around this. So that was a very formative experience, um, being alone with a cadaver doing dissection. But the next summer, I took a job as a nurse's aide in a nursing home. Again, I needed a job. I didn't have job skills. I didn't know you weren't supposed to like this work. I didn't know you were supposed to somehow be separated from elderly people. And I had elderly aunts and uncles, so it seemed normal to me. And it was only later that I could look back and say, oh, I was conditioned at a pretty young age to be okay around old people, sick people, dying people, and bodies. And fascinated by biology, it made sense to study science. But I also knew from an early age that I was going to be a writer. So I came to, I chose nursing as my job. I have to pay the rent. I, I'm not going to go to graduate school and, and uh, get an MFA. So I want to get out there and write. So it, it, it held me up very well. And it was only later, <laughs> it's only as you mature that you begin to realize some of the benefits here. That kind of work takes me out of my own head. There's nothing like being around a dying or sick person to make you put down your own agenda for a while and pay attention to somebody else. And that's been very useful for my own growth. Of course, when I'm dying, I hope that you're just paying attention to me <laughs> and not thinking about your grocery list or anything else. That's, that's what we, we want. That dying person should always be the center of care. And I do talk some in the book about how you can fire your doctor if they don't get that (laughs) and how a person who's helping you, they don't get to set the agenda for what you talk about. And that you, you'd mentioned things we don't, we shouldn't do. How many of us have visited a sick person and, or especially with a family member and gone in with the idea that we were going to get closure. We were going to finally sort out those tensions and finish that conversation that never got finished. That has nothing to do with what the dying person wants. That's one of the things we shouldn't say, I need closure. Yeah. And I have to say, we're getting to at least what the heart of the book was for me, which was if like there was one piece of advice that I kept hearing in a moving way after moving way is get out of your own head your own agenda, listen to the dying person. It's a privilege. It can do more for you than you would believe. Just get there. So Right, right. Just right now, if there was just one thing that you, or, or two things that you could say about how to do that, how to put aside yourself, really, so you can be there for someone who won't be there for much longer, how do you do that? Well, and I want to back up first and say that a friend of mine um, who recently took care of her mother dying started to read this book, and she said she had to put it down when she got to this section because she had actually said those things that I said you shouldn't say. She had done those things that you shouldn't do, and she felt really bad about it. And I, I am kind of sorry that there isn't a sentence in there. I thought it was a given that says, of course, you're going to make mistakes, We all make mistakes. A friend of mine died this spring, and I was with him just a few days before he died, and I was really struck at how awkward and clumsy I felt around him. I do this every week. I go to work and I do this. But with Jamie, I felt nervous and I felt uncertain because that's how how we are around people. I had to step out of that professional role and be his friend, and that's a, an innately awkward position. So start out by knowing that you're probably going to make mistakes, and it's okay. It's okay. And another thing to do is to admit very transparently, at least to yourself, what you're worried about. 
what you're afraid of. One reason we're not fully attentive around dying people is because we're anxious. So we put our, we get out of our own head because our head is an uncomfortable place to be. So we chatter or we find things to do or we get distracted just because we don't really want to deal with what's in there. So that's the first thing I think is to just be really honest with yourself. I'm really anxious. I won't know what to do. If What if he needs to go to the bathroom? Uh, what if he looks weird? What if he smells funny? You know, we, we don't say those things out loud. And that's what I want us to do. Wow. Yeah, that, it was such... I really like that about understanding that, of course, we're going to make some mistakes. And also, you keep going until you get there because uh, it's, it's something special. Can, can you describe what it feels like to put yourself aside and really be there for someone who's dying, whether they're a friend or a patient? I've heard it called a liminal space. If that's a good word. It is. It feels timeless. It feels outside of things. I find myself kind of coming to a stop in a way. Um, I try to stop in the doorway and, and just look, take, just stop and look and take a breath because this is a space unlike any other space you'll ever be in. And I mean, by space, I mean, not just this physical proximity to a person whose body is failing, but the psychological space of being with somebody where everything we think is important is set aside. Everything that we worry about all day, everything we plan on and expect every day, none of that matters anymore. Imagine a space in which everything that seems important to you has gone. It is a different world. It's a different moment. So it feels quite timeless and slow. It can also be very boring. It can be very irritating. It can be, it can be very repetitious. If you're with a dying person over a period of time, you're going to feel just about every emotion. You're going to laugh. You're going to cry. You're going to get bored. You're going to get annoyed. You're going to get angry. All of those things will come up. But it sounds like that even years into having this profession and doing this practice and showing up for both patients and your friends, that you still have a, a deep reverence uh, and sense of specialness around this space. D does that just happen naturally for you or is that something you really have to cultivate? I don't think you have to cultivate it. I, I don't know. Have you been around many dying people? So I, I have had some uh, big deaths in my family, and most of them were, were sudden, which is one of the reasons why it was such a great relief to read this book, is because I have very little experience with, uh, with having the opportunity to be there for a dying person. Have you ever been with a dead body? Uh, brain dead, yes. Well, yeah, same thing, although they're very eerie. Brain dead, brain dead breathing bodies are quite eerie because they... They challenge us in so many ways. But I don't have to cultivate that special state of mind, that slow, timeless mind, because it just is there. I think this is, like I say um, about that moment of death, when the Buddha was dying, his primary disciple said, my hair stood up. And that, you know, that was thousands of years ago, and it resonates for me today. My hair stands up. This is unlike anything else. It's unlike anything else you'll experience or see. Uh, I think it's part of our human nature. And if you look at history, human beings have been solemn and attentive around death and dying as long as we have recorded history. It, it's part of our nature. Other mammals do too. Yeah, that's beautifully said. And that there's, it's just there and you have to let it be, it sounds like. Let me say that I do see people come into that room and then rush out again. Not everybody is comfortable enough to be able to handle that space. But I would encourage anybody who has tried, who has been overwhelmed by it or frightened by it, to just work your way back in step by step. Uh, don't assume that you can't do it. I've heard people say that, oh, I can't do it. I can't stand dying. I can't go to a hospital. Yes, you can. You just have to give yourself time to learn how. So you spoke briefly in this book about also being a practicing Buddhist and, and meditator. And I'm curious how this space of 
being there and for a dying person uh, compares or contrasts with you know deep meditative practice? They're very compatible. Um, and I think you do a meditative practice as well. So you probably understand this, that uh, the, pr- the meditation I practice is traditional zazen or shikantaza, which is a practice of being as attentive as possible to the conditions of the moment. So that means not using a mantra or a meditation object, but really being as aware as possible of this moment what the body feels like, what you hear, what's in front of you, holding still and letting the mind settle into the present moment. So I don't want to be a proselytizer here, but that's pretty good practice for life. Yeah. (laughs) And it's pretty good practice for any stressful experience. So I've done it long enough, often enough over enough years that I can take a deep breath and find that root of attention when I need it. Does that mean I always do it? No. I can be just as distracted as the next person, but if I want to, I can, I can find it. So that's that moment of stepping, standing in the doorway and just stopping, coming to a zero space before I proceed, which is to acknowledge this moment, this place is not the same as the one before. Here I am here now, not the next moment, not the last, but this. You mentioned earlier that you can get very frustrated with sort of wellness sort of terminology and being self-involved and this seems like like a perfect alternative to that where you have this practice and it isn't what meditation can do for me it's you know this deep satisfaction of it helps you show up for the people you want to show up for and have satisfaction about that right and Part of my part of my frustration with my own generation, this obsession that people have with youth, with looking young, with with not changing, meditation practice of any kind is partly an encounter with change. It's partly forcing you to acknowledge that this moment is not the same as the one before. I think it's that many people misuse these practices because they have an agenda. They have a goal, a goal outside themselves, which is, I'm going to stay young, I'm going to stay attractive, I'm going to do yoga because it makes me look better, not because it in any way explains things. So if we go into it with a solemn goal, which is understanding, then it will take us to any of these critical moments. And of course, you know, I'm doing all of this work now, writing this book and doing all this now because I want to die in a way that's not painful or frightening. I want to be ready for it. I want to look ahead to it. Of course, I'm not actually going to die. You're going to (laughs) die. Everybody else is going to die. I'm going to live forever. But I know that that's not true. My life is partly about being ready for that. Hey, this is your host, Hansa Bergwa, alongside his co-conspirator, Ian Thomas. We're having a great conversation today, but we are taking a little break to ask you to head over to wecroak.com uh, to get engaged and uh, hit the Become a Patron button to support our Patreon, or hit the contact form and uh, tell us you want to see some advertising on this podcast instead. You know, as the great sex worker and poet Maya Angelou said, there are many ways to prostitute oneself, so we'll do it if you want us to. As always, Hans and I are here for for you all, the listeners. This whole universe of We Croak has been solely created thanks to, to you and the time that you put in. So thank you so much for doing that and supporting us as we continue to grow and expand the universe of what We Croak could be and thinking about death more often as we go about our daily lives. Yeah, because we're just trying to make a difference here and hear from interesting people who have led interesting lives and have had experiences that uh, are worth hearing about how, you know, we live through them. I think these are conversations worth having. There's there's no better way to enjoy the We Croak podcast than uh, drinking some delicious coffee out of your We Croak mug. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, the Live Immediately mug? Um, yeah, it's, it's pretty cute. It holds coffee really well. So join us, get a mug, and let's get back to the show. 
I have to say one of the things that struck me about this book from your deep experience is, you know, you say basically like 99 out of 100 times the pain is manageable through medication or different things, but it's these sort of these social, emotional things with the people, family and other people they care about, which can often, you know, um, hit the fan, if you will, mm-hmm. um, more than the actual body falling apart for people and just so much care and attention to sort of helping these relationships be supportive to the end. Right. One of the pieces of advice I would give somebody who is dying, who is seeing it coming is you have the right to be selfish here. You get to say, my sister's not coming in that room. You get to say, I'm not having that conversation. You get to say, I'm not, I'm not doing that event or eating that meal or in any way helping you reach closure. closure. I'm not there for you right now. I'm there for me. So one of the things about this book is it's steeped in so much of the, the practical wisdom of palliative care, which I think is important. But it doesn't sound clinical at all. It's, it's written like you're, you're an exceptional writer. And I was wondering if you had any passages that can just give our listeners a feel for how beautiful a book this is to read. I would read a little bit about from the chapter called That Moment, which is the moment of dying. How would that be? That would be wonderful. Such wonder. With my eyes closed, I can tell. Do we have a constant subconscious awareness of the pulse, a microscopic attention to the flow of blood? Do we know life as something electrical, pheromonal, ethereal? The follicles on the back of your neck salute in surprise. For the first time since conception, the body is still, stopped. Life is tension. Life is animation, movement, tone, elasticity. Not this. And I, I wish for everyone an opportunity to be present at that moment before it's their own turn. Our culture has it so backward. And as I note in the book, 150 years ago, children were part of this. They took care of dying people. They were there for the moment of death. Death vigils were very common and expected. They helped clean up a dead body. But they were totally denied any information about pregnancy and childbirth. And now we've flipped that completely. Now, you know, a toddler is supposed to know all about where the baby's coming from and are often present at births and, and never, ever around a dying person or even a sick person. We, we hide this away. I'm not sure what we think is going to happen instead. It's kind of funny, you know. It, it's, it's a pretty funny denial. It is kind of funny. And obviously the whole we crook thing exists <laughs> to try to correct that crazy notion that death is not something for life. Uh, but, like, what, what do you think we lose as a society when we have so little relationship with that moment you just so beautifully described that, to be honest, I've never had of, you know, feeling hair stick up on the back of your neck at the moment. Like, what, what does that bring to, to life? Well, it, it feeds our, what, what, does, what does having that moment bring to life? I, I love that image. It's actually a pretty old image, but I like the way Katagiri said it, that the China bowl is beautiful because it will break. We don't love a plastic bowl the same way we love a china bowl. We value fragility. We value vulnerability. Why is that? I, I think that deep down we do know. We entirely know that everything is changing and everything will die. I'm a mother of three and a grandmother of four, and I still grieve for my little girl, who is now 34, but I... I miss that two-year-old and that four-year-old. She died. The two-year-old died and the four-year-old died and the eight-year-old died. We experience this all the time. And yet we don't call it that when we watch our, our relationships and our bodies and the tree in our yard and everything else grow and change. We don't call it death, but that's exactly what it is. 
We are born and die into new forms all the time. Having the moment of watching the physical shell cease to function drives that home in a, in a profound way. And it is such mystery. We have our own private beliefs about what happens next, but we don't know. We don't know for sure. Even if we go toward that moment, peaceful and comforted and sure, it's still a door that only opens one way. Yeah. Do you have one more passage from your book you could read us? Yeah. Okay. This is about um, a few of those things not to say and how to be with a person who is dying. Don't predict how long a person will live. Don't say, are you sure that doctor knows what he's talking about? Don't say, why don't you try harder? Don't you love me enough to fight? Don't say, you meant so much to me, forgetting to change the tense. Don't say, never say, do not say, help me get through this. Never complain that a person's death is difficult for you to bear. The dying person has no obligation to sort things out for you, listen to your apologies, explain his past actions, or make you feel better about his death. It is not the dying person's job to fix your loss of him. This sounds so obvious, but the urge to be consoled in our grief is great. Don't leave me, you think. How can you? What will I do? Why is this happening? Fix it. These things, these thoughts make no logical sense, yet you may feel a powerful need to say them out loud. Don't. A dying person truly no needs to know that their death will not cause harm. It hurts. Of course it hurts, but no one is trying to hurt you. Yeah, that is such important practical advice that manages to be moving at the same time. <laughs> I, I, I want to make room for laughter in here, too. People don't realize how funny life is sometimes, and dying is funny, too. It's pretty... It's pretty strange. If we can just admit this and open our hearts and say, wow, this is weird. I've never done this before. All of this can come into the same room with us. Wow. Do you have a funny story about death you'd like to share? <laughs> uh, let's see that I can say on the, on, <laughs> that I can say out loud. Well, I think about Butch. I tell the story of Butch in the in our in the book. Butch was um, my husband's AA sponsor, and Butch had been in prison for 26 years for armed robbery and a number of crimes. He had a horrible life story, but he was really a darling man. And when he came out of prison, he really didn't know how to be an adult. He didn't know how to be in the world at all. So. He spent a lot of time with our family sort of figuring out how to be with other people. And Butch just wanted to go fishing. That was, to him, the epitome of being free was to be outside with a fishing pole in the open. But Butch got liver cancer a few years after he got out of prison. So long story short, he ended up in our living room for his last few weeks uh, because the hospice agency was not just not doing what they needed to do to take care of him. So we brought him home. Butch had been working for a, an organization that worked with homeless people. And most of the people in his life were ex-cons, drug addicts, street people, lots of guys who were trying to stay sober on the street, guys of every kind, really great people. So our house in a quiet residential neighborhood of Portland became <laughs> became central city concern for a while. <laughs> there was just a long line of men taking the bus and walking and hauling their shopping cart and their duffel bags to our house. One of them stayed with us to help. And they would have impromptu AA meetings and prayer meetings and sing-alongs and just help with Butch. And I was able to show some of them how to help him to the bath, to the commode and taught one of them how to give him his medication. And they would go in the kitchen and make a big mess trying to make a meal. And it was kind of our life for those last few weeks of Butch's life. Everything was Butch in our life. So it was, it was quite funny at times to look up and see these kind of 
disheveled but polite, well-meaning guys, one with a guitar, singing old country songs <laughs> in my living room. And then uh, when Butch died, they just came out of the woodwork. Somehow the network got the word out and guys arrived for hours to come say goodbye to Butch. So there were about 20 guys there when the funeral home finally came to take Butch's body. And these two really sweet guys in their black suits came in and rolled him into the body bag and they zipped it up to the face and they said, would he want sunshine on his face or not? And everyone in the room at once said, sunshine. This is a guy who'd been in prison for so long. <laughs> sunshine, the fisherman. So they carried him upright down the stairs so that he was standing in the sun one last time. It was just fantastic. It was a great experience. Um, I was really glad we were able to do that. And believe me, there were some funny moments. <laughs> if you just open yourself to what's in front of you, we find out that most people are pretty good people and most of us share the same feelings and hopes about our lives and our deaths. That is such a great story. And in a way, it's apropos because you know, the, the incarcerated, the homeless, is the in recovery but struggling, you know, these are people there's we feel unsafe around or many people do that there's a t taboo that of letting them in your home or even in your suburb or your neighborhood. <laughs> and here you are welcoming them. And it sounds like not only were they, I mean, they were there to pay respects, so they were respectful and reverent, but also a lot of fun to be in community with. Right. And they, and, and you know, they're kind of big, awkward guys, a lot of them who aren't used to family life, but very willing to say, oops, I'm sorry. Sorry, ma'am. I was always ma'am. But I work with a lot of people like that in, in my nursing job as well. A lot of our clients are people coming off the street or out of very difficult circumstances, people whose life is not leading them toward a good death. But by giving them really excellent care in the last few years, we help people turn their lives around. And I just do for others what I want someone else to do for me. And respect is a big part of it. It also sounds like, you know, in, in preparation for those last moments, if you want amazing people showing up and showing love, you know, it's, it's not about necessarily money or, you know, prestige or status. But if you have a strong community of people you've helped, um, that can go a long, long way. <laughs> right. It does. Um, you do pay it forward, let me tell you. <laughs> We say that, you know, you get the face you deserve as you get older, that your your wrinkles, your wrinkles are an expression of the way your face has looked. And so you see people who have permanent frowns and, and worry lines and others who have laugh lines. I think that death often will be an expression of your life. You cultivate kindness and you cultivate respect and it does come back. Given all of that, Go back to what we said at the beginning, which is you don't get to be in charge. So you can set everything up. You can have everything planned and it's going to go a different direction. So being open handed and accepting is also part of it. Yeah, of course. Of course. I'm single now and a lot of my friends are single and we joke about being able to do the Heimlich maneuver on ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> or not getting eaten by our cats because we, we worry, we love living alone. All of my close friends, we just adore living alone. But at the same time, we think, what if nobody finds me for three days and I'm locked in with the dog? That's my friend Steve, who's got a bad heart and says, he, whenever he feels his heart start to go wobbly, he has to go sit on the porch so that the mail carrier will find him because he'd hate to be locked in the house with the dog. It reminds me of a really great uh, stoic quote, Epicetus, that ravens only take out your eyes when you're, you're dead and no longer have use of them, but flatterers can blind you while you're alive. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, we love that. <laughs> yeah, we haven't even started to talk about decomposition. There's so much more. Oh, tell me about decomposition. Boy, how much time have we got? Decomposition <laughs> is fascinating, but one thing I talk about in the book is that at that moment of death, that is the moment that decomposition begins. And one definition of death is 
when the body stops doing all of the things it does to prevent decomposition. That that's what it means to die. Immediately, massive physiological changes, massive anatomical changes begin. And it proceeds in very predictable waves. And it is so shocking to think this hand, this body, this face is going to do that. But it is completely predictable and very well known. My favorite current way to handle a dead body is this company up in Seattle that is doing very serious work toward creating human composting. They're called Recompose. <laughs> They've got a lot of university scientists and some long-term research projects. They're working with lawyers and politicians for legislation, as well as architects. And the idea is that the body goes into a pod where it is allowed to compost. And they've worked out the science of how to have a human body compost within several months. And then the soil is used to, is given to the family to use for plants. That's amazing. I'll share with you that when my mother passed away long ago, she wanted to be cremated and spread in the garden, which is exactly what we did. Mm -hmm. And had uh, human composting been a thing back then, I'm sure she would have, that would have been her last directive instead. That's beautiful in its way and totally scary to think about in another, but also so natural. But listen, they, they put out a request. They needed some test subjects, so they asked for people to donate their bodies if they, were, if they were expected to die within a year. And they had so many people, they had to turn them down. They had to say, we have enough, we have enough. We have hundreds more applications than we have room for. People want that. And, you know, my current hope right now is resumation, which is liquid, compo liquid cremation. Oh, wow. Cremation is actually really dirty and very energy demanding and has a, there are a lot of drawbacks to cremation. So resumation is legal in a number of states and there's a movement to legalize this everywhere. It's legal here right up the street for me is a resumation chamber where the body is basically, it's alkaline hydrolysis. It's just dissolved at a low temperature. And the flesh, all the soft parts become a liquid slurry and the skeleton is left pretty friable so it's easy to smash into ash. So you can actually pour this liquid on plants. It can go down the drain if you really want to. If that's how you feel about Aunt Lucille, you could put her down the drain. <laughs> but most people would probably want to put it on plants. Is it good for the plants? Yeah, it's a it's a pretty neutral fluid. We're mostly water. Right, right, of course. And there is a part of the process where you can try to get some of the heavy metals out, you know, our mercury fillings and all that. But cremation is quite dirty. So if we're concerned about environmental sensitivity, the best thing is a, an unembalmed body in the ground. Just put it in there and let the insects get to work. So natural burial grounds are, are starting to really be more common or a low liquid, a, a low heat resumation, or someday we'll compost. We'll not just put the bodies in the ground, we'll actually turn them into soil first. This is what people have always done, after all. <laughs> it, it is. So we've been talking a lot about that urgent moment of, you know, death and dying. But there's also that sort of unurgent moment of telling your loved ones, you know, just having the conversation, have, not having death be that taboo, telling your loved one, hey, I want to be potting soil, or hey, I want liquid cremation, or one of these things, or I don't want to be put on a ventilator. And what is your advice just for facing that moment, which is much smaller in a way, and yet it's you know not as urgent so people don't do it? It's a huge bridge to cross. If you can have that conversation, in some ways the rest is easy. And it's one of the things I do when I've taught workshops on this is we fill out, we create a death plan. You may change it over time, but you're going to sit down. We'll talk for a while, and then you're going to sit down, and you're going to say, this is what I would like my death to look like. Make a list of uh, particular precious objects and who you would give them to. Make a death playlist of the songs you want to hear. And hopefully write your advance directive, which just tells people specifically what you want or not want done if you're not able to make decisions for yourself. But a good advanced directive includes at least a page of your own philosophy and your values around this. 
not just I don't want a feeding tube if I'm unconscious, but this is how I feel about death. This is what feels like an important value for me to express in my death. This is the way I want to be remembered. So you add that to your advanced directive. And I have mine all clipped together with my death playlist in case I'm in a coma in the hospital and signed by two of my close friends and not family members. That's another mistake a lot of people make with advanced directives is they get their closest living relative to have to be the person who makes these difficult decisions. And that's just hard and not fair. It should be someone like my friends who love me, but are perfectly willing to pull the plug if the time comes. Right, right. It should not be the person who's going to have the hardest time letting you go. That person needs to just be with their state of mind, their grieving, their acute distress at that time, and not forced to make difficult decisions on the fly. Advanced directives are brought into play when there's a lot of stress at you know in the middle of a crisis and it shouldn't be your closest relative. So I have mine all set up, all witnessed and ready to go on my desk where it's obvious so that it's not in the safety deposit box somewhere or invisible. I love this idea of an advanced directive or preparing for one as something you can do when you're healthy and it should be kind of fun and sort of a celebration of your values, not just a list of rules of what not to do. That sounds really nice. When I, when I got married, we, that's how we did it. We talked about our values and figured out how the celebration would reflect them. And it was right. the most beautiful day of my life. And I like, you know, the idea of, you know, preparing for death, something you can do anytime, and that it's about you and what you want. And maybe your death will be the next most beautiful day of your life. Maybe. You won't know. <laughs> A lot of good days to have until then. <laughs> right. But so many people haven't done this. Listen, I work with people in their 90s who do not have a funeral plan. It just kills me. I I, uh, <laughs> I have to make this call sometimes and say, well, I'm, I've got some news for you. Your, your mom just died this morning. And they're like, well, now what do I do? These people in their 70s who have not considered the possibility that their mother in their 90s will die. And I don't know how we get there. What percentage of people who are dying have it together today? Is it most people, but just by a little bit? Or is it not most people? God, I don't know. Um, uh, and we're talking people versus, are you talking about Americans? Um, Americans, people that you might see in your practice. I'd say, you know, probably half of the people I work with who are chronically ill people, that's how they come into our practice. They're medically complicated and they're trying to stay independent. They've thought about it, but some of them, you say, let's talk about what might happen if your heart stops. They'll be, they'll be like, oh, I know, oh, I know, I've got all that figured out. And others are like, what kind of horrible person are that you would bring that up? Here's a, a person with cancer and epilepsy and diabetes in their 70s. So um, it varies. It varies widely how, how accepting we are. We have great chaplains, and sometimes that's the way to get there is not through the medical professional, but to have a chaplain, just have a philosophical conversation with people. I, honestly, I think everybody thinks about it. We just consider it something that we're not supposed to talk about. That's, that's your app. If your app goes off when you're with somebody and you get to show them your phone and say, look, let's talk about this. Was that part of your idea? Was that it's not just for the person who has the app, but that everybody around them will also get the message? Yeah. And I've, I've heard great stories of like hiking in the Grand Canyon and taking a picture with friends in front of an historic vista. And like the friend is taking the picture and then the a notification comes up and they're like, what is that? <laughs> Yeah, no, you're at the Grand Canyon, so don't step backward. Yeah, I mean, it's it's about just talking about it, having it be part of life. It's not as, you know, it's not the moment of hair standing on the back of your neck. And that's kind of the point. It's just for all the time, every day, just to get a tiny bit more comfortable with it. And, you know, and most of us who are comfortable with it, we are still comfortable with it in the sense of, I will die, not right now. I can imagine that happening. I'm in, I'm 61, maybe when I'm 80, I don't know. But sometimes I sit on my couch and I close my eyes and I think the meteor is coming. It's about to crash through this window. What's that like? 
What is it like to face the fact that it's this minute? That's what we don't do is right now you're dying. How do you feel? If, if you do not get anything but this, is it okay? I cannot recommend that practice enough. I like to say, one of the reasons I like this book is you really talk about that, you know, innate cognitive bias not to think about it. You know, I made an app that reminds you you're gonna die five times a day. I like to joke that most of the times I'm surprised when I get a notification. <laughs> How many times are you distressed when you get the notification? Almost never. You're okay with it? Well, I get distressed if it catches me in a moment where I'm really not living my values. Ah, yes. Then it can allow me to have a course correction, which is what I want. Yeah. And uh, that can be distressing. But at this point, you know, it's just reminding me of something true that I forget. So that isn't distressing. I know it's not happening right now, at least for another millisecond for me. It's just, you know, I catch myself getting lost. Right, right. A lot. (laughs) We can't spend every minute of our lives thinking, I'm going to die right now. I could die right now. I could die right now. We can't do that. We have to just live and live and live, but not be surprised by the fact that it's coming. But you can live more and more of your life with that feeling of living according to your values, you know, showing up for the people who are dying in your life or simply that you want to show up for or working on the projects you really care about or spending time with the people you really care about. So any practice, be it meditation or remembering death or trying to work on an advanced directive in a way like it's a wedding and reflects your values, like all of these things are just about that, like, you know, and how to, how to live more hours of your life in a way that you're proud of. So I want to thank you so much for having this call uh, with us today. Uh, and being on this podcast. Uh, really, really great book. I can't recommend it enough, both for the, the wisdom in it, honestly, as well as how it's written. It's just a beautiful book to read. And I'm looking forward to um, the next title, um, Advice for Future Potting Soil. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'd love to invite you if you have any closing words of uh, practical perspective to share with our listeners. Let me, I'll go to the book and read the last lines. This was after, after Carol died and we, we buried her in her own meadow, unembalmed. So she became compost for sure. In the spring, a few months after Carol died, I was thinking of her. I thought of her every day that season. I found a little lime green frog in the shower and watched a bald eagle circle over the meadow for a long time. I saw a hatchling of ants and weeded the lettuce listening to the voices of the world. When I got home, I found a message. A bird had made a nest on Carol's grave and laid four small white eggs beside where her pillow would have been. I thought she would love it, and then I thought, maybe she does. Maybe she's laughing at us all right now, saying, here I am. She has gone away and isn't coming back, but instead, ant, frog, eagle, egg. Thank you so much. You're welcome, and thank you for having me. And thank you, our audience, for listening to this episode. If you have a moment, please leave us a review on iTunes. We're dying to know what you think. Pun intended. And in the meantime, stay tuned for more episodes.